By August 1944, the Allies had captured most of the Pacific Islands of strategic benefit between Hawaii and Japan. The goal was to establish a secure airbase on an island within the range of a B-29 bomber in the Mariana Islands of Guam, Saipan, and Tinian. At the same time, strategists were drawing up a list of potential targets for a nuclear attack. They wanted to choose a city that had not suffered notable damage from previous attacks so they could clearly demonstrate the devastating power of the bomb. The cities of Kyoto and Hiroshima were at the top of the list, but because of Kyoto's historic significance, they chose Hiroshima as their primary target, regardless of the hundreds of thousands of civilians who called the city their home. Welcome to Society of Strife, Season 2. For the next 10 to 13 weeks, we'll be looking at the legacy of the atomic age and the countries, communities, and people who got caught in the crossfire between the US and the USSR, including some victims that may surprise you, partly because they have no idea they are victims. Towards the end, we'll also look at the lessons we never learned from history as countries continue to stockpile nuclear weapons and withdraw from critical pacts, including the Open Skies Treaty. Before I continue, I'd like to ask you guys a favor. I have spent the last two weeks researching and developing this season and have a long way to go because I'm still knee-deep in research papers. So please, press pause right now and share this show with at least two people. It would mean a lot. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Society of Strife. If you feel like you can do much more than that, support the show on patreon.com slash societyofstrife and buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife. Any help is greatly appreciated. Now that you've paused the episode and shared with at least two people and hopefully gotten on Patreon and or buy me a coffee, let's get on with the show. Today, we get to talk about Hiroshima. Admittedly, some of us already know quite a bit about Hiroshima. But I found out that what we know and what we think we know may be two vastly different things. For example, I thought that Viktor Orban, Hungary's prime minister, couldn't be more of an asshole. But recent events proved me wrong. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just type Viktor Orban on Google. That's Viktor with a K and Orban as in O-R-B-A-N. Anyway, Google will probably make a suggestion after you type Victor, because I'm sure a lot of people around the world are typing the word Victor on Google. I also thought that after Biden became president, US-China relations would cool down, but it appears they are heading towards supernova level, which, for the sake of the planet, is not a good thing. This past Wednesday, I was reading about how the Russians fired warning shots at a British Navy destroyer that had deliberately chosen to enter Crimean territorial waters. I, sh I should point out that the UK doesn't recognize Crimea as Russian territory. That aside, I don't know. In my opinion, that was a seriously irresponsible thing for that ship to do, especially when you consider that, according to the Russians, the ship was three kilometers or two miles into its waters. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be living in a world that looks like Fallout 4. Can you imagine having to narrate to a feral ghoul 
that the reason it is a ghoul in the first place is because a boat entered another country's water without prior authorization, it would be humiliating. According to the UK, no shots were fired and it was, quote-unquote, just an exercise. I don't know who is being honest here, but I would rather not get into it because it will ruin my Fallout 4 fantasy. At this point, any gamers who listen to this show will be asking themselves, why is this guy going on about a game that's 6 years old? To be honest, Starfield has gotten me quite excited. I hope that it is as good as Fallout 4 and Skyrim while it does come out. We can all agree that Fallout 76 sucked and still sucks. As with every Bethesda game that I have played, I expect a couple of bugs, obviously. In July 1945, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves and his team were busy on the island of Tinian, assembling two atomic bombs. Like any ambitious person worth his salt, Groves had plans to build more. That is not a compliment, by the way. I am strongly anti-nuclear proliferation. Like some Scottish people, I believe that nuclear weapons are barbaric and an affront to basic human decency. This season, just like any other, I will only include facts. I just wanted to put that out there because I don't want anything I say to be misconstrued. I repeat, I don't like nuclear weapons, especially because they are very dangerous and are used mainly as an ego boost. In fact, everything about them is wrong. The first of these bombs was christened Little Boy and used the uranium core, and the second, nicknamed Fatman, used a plutonium core. I will get into why the cores are important in just a bit. By using two different bomb designs, the scientists and by extension, the US government could determine which was the most effective. That's one of the things that I find really disturbing about this attack. The fact that so much of it was just an experiment. There was so much the scientists did not know about atomic weapons and yet they and the government still decided to go on and use them. That will be a recurring theme in this season of Society of Strife. As final preparations were made for the first attack, Little Boy was loaded onto a specially configured B-29 bomber named Enola Gay after the mission commander's mother. The order to drop Little Boy was issued on July 25th by General Thomas Handy, who was the acting chief of staff at the time. He authorized the 509th composite group, which later became known as the 509th Bombardment Group, to, quote, deliver its first special bomb as soon as the weather will permit visual bombing, end quote. After August 3rd, against one of the four targets, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Niigata, and Kokura. After final assembly of Little Boy was completed on July 31st, the 509th was ready to go but bad weather forced the mission to wait until August 6th. So, let's look at the people who would be involved in the bombing of Hiroshima. The first was Paul Tibbets. He was the mission commander, and the Enola Gay was named after his mother. Tibbets was allowed by his superiors to command the mission and fly the B-29 that would drop Little Boy. After this approval, he borrowed aircraft 44-86292, a B-29 that was ordinarily flown by Robert Lewis. Lewis himself joined Paul Tibbets in the cockpit. T-34 
Tibets also replaced the bombardier and navigator with two officers he had personally handpicked to join the 509th. Those two officers were Thomas Ferriby and Theodore Dutch von Kirk. Both of them had been part of Tibet's crew earlier in the war. The final crew consisted of Paul Tibet, Robert Lewis, Dutch Van Kirk, Ferriby, William Dick Parsons, who flew as bomb commander, Wyatt Dusenbury, who was the flight engineer, Robert Schumard, who was the assistant engineer, radio operator Richard Nelson, radar operator Joseph Stiborik, tail gunner George Caron, electronic countermeasures officers Je Jacob Besser, and electronics test officer and assistant bomb commander or weaponier Maurice Jepson. Most of you will wonder why all those people were involved. Well, it was partly because of the plane, the B-29. The B-29 was not the most reliable of aircraft, and the crew had just watched four of them crash while trying to take off on August 4, 1945. Because of its reliability, William Parsons was worried about using it in the Hiroshima mission. On the morning of the 5th, Parsons shared his worries with Brigadier General Thomas Farrell. Quote, There is the danger of an atomic explosion and we may lose this end of the island, if not the whole of Tinian, with every blessed thing and person on it. End quote. To avoid that, Parsons proposed that he do the final assembly of the bomb in flight, a procedure he had been previously against. That way, if the Enola Gay was to crash, there would be minimal risk of an accidental atomic explosion. Farrell asked Parsons if he had tried the procedure. Of course, he hadn't, but was resolved to try it before the mission began. After Farrell gave his approval, the destination team loaded Little Boy onto its trailer and drove it out to the bomb pit. Surrounded by a security screen, the bomb was lowered into the pit on a hydraulic lift. Aircraft 44-86292, now christened Enola Gay, was towed into position over the pit. The bomb crew then slowly raised the bomb into the plane's bomb bay. With a partially assembled bomb in place, Parsons crawled into the aircraft's crowded interior and began to practice inserting the final components, cutting his hands on exposed metal in the process. That right there is what I call cojones. Two hours later, he emerged from the plane. He was covered in sweat, blood, and graphite that was used to lubricate the bomb's moving parts. Despite all that, he was confident that he could complete Little Boy once the plane was in the air and on the way to Japan. The planes would take off in the pre-dawn darkness. That evening, after a normal pre-flight briefing, Tibets could not sleep, and I honestly can't blame him. He played blackjack with a few of his fellow officers until 11pm, when he, Parsons, and another officer assembled the men of the flight crews that would fly the combat mission for a final briefing. Until then, none of the men of the 509th knew exactly what their secret weapon was. Tibet said, quote, Tonight is the night that we have all been waiting for. Our long months of training are to be put to the test. 
we will soon know if we have been successful or failed. Upon our efforts tonight, it is possible that history will be made. We are going on a mission to drop a bomb different from any you have ever seen or heard about. This bomb contains a destructive force equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT. End quote. After a pause, presumably for dramatic effect, he went on to outline tactics and the plan for the mission. Parsons then warned the crew to shield their eyes from the flash. After the briefing, the 509th went to the mess hall for a pre-flight breakfast before heading out to the runway. On the runway, seven B-29s stood by. Of those, three were Watha reconnaissance planes. Straight flash, commanded by Major Italy, would fly to Hiroshima. Jabit Third, commanded by Major John Wilson, would fly to Kokura, and Full House, commanded by Major Ralph Taylor, would fly to Nagasaki. The three planes took off at 1.45 a.m. and started for Japan. Four other planes stood by. The Enola Gay, commanded by Paul Tibbets, The Great Artist, commanded by Major Charles Sweeney. Necessary Evil, commanded by Captain George McQuart, and Top Secret, commanded by Charles McKnight. The Great Artist carried instruments to measure the blast. The Necessary Evil was to observe and photograph the attack, and Top Secret was the backup plane for the bomb. It would fly as far as Iwo Jima, a Japanese island that is part of the Ogasawara archipelago, which at the time was under U.S. occupation after all its civilians had been forcibly removed. The top secret was to stand by in case the Enola Gay developed issues and had to abort the mission. At 2.27 a.m., Paul Tibbetts and the Enola Gay taxied up onto the runway. Revving his engines, or his mother's engines as the case may be, okay, that sounds wrong, he began to roll, forward using every inch of the runway to help ensure that Parsons' fears were not realized. Enola Gay lifted off at 2.45 a.m. and began to climb to a north-northwest heading of 3.38 degrees. Ten minutes later, it passed Saipan, an island that was formerly Japanese but is now under U.S. occupation, at a speed of 247 miles per hour. Parsons and Maurice Jepson climbed into the Bombay 15 minutes into the flight, and there, under Jepson's watchful eye, Parsons delicately performed the final assembly of Little Boy. With the bomb prepared, Parsons and Jepson returned to the weaponier's station in the forward compartment to monitor the bomb during the flight. Enola Gay and the rest of the B-29s rendezvoused at Iwo Jima at 5.55 a.m. Top Secret landed on the island to wait for the next few hours. As the sun rose in the sky, the squadron was now at its final heading. The time was 6 or 7 a.m. and the squadron was flying northwest on a 322 to 325 degree course at 9,700 feet. They were headed directly for the southern tip of Shikoku, where the primary target, Hiroshima, lay. An hour ahead of them, the three reconnaissance planes were just approaching the mainland of Japan. At 7.30 a.m., as Enola Gay came closer to the Japanese mainland, 
Jepson climbed back into the bomb bay to switch out the safe slash arm plugs. After this was done, Parsons turned to Paul Tibbets and told him that the bomb was ready. At 7.41 a.m., the plane began to ascend to 31,600 feet. As they approached Japan, Tibet grew worried when he noticed clouds, but a coded signal from straight flash told him that despite a bit of cloud cover, Hiroshima was clear. The time was 8.30 a.m. This meant that the primary target, Hiroshima, could be bombed visually as Tibet's orders specified. Notifying the crew, Tibet flew over Shikoku and began the final run across the EOC towards Hiroshima. The plan of attack called for the bombing to take place at approximately 9.15 a.m. At 9.06 a.m., Hiroshima appeared on the horizon and Tibet made his way to the, ini to the initial point. The initial point was a navigational spot. Once he reached the initial point, he turned Enola Gate to the west. Flying at 264 degrees, the plane was now on the bombing run. As the plane came closer to the city, Thomas Ferebi, who was, quote, an old hand at dropping bombs, began to scan the ground below with his northern bombsite. What he was looking for was the target, Hiroshima's Aoi Bridge. At 31,060 feet above Hiroshima, Ferebi activated a high-pitched radio tone that warned the other planes that the bomb would drop in about 60 seconds. As the countdown came to an end, the Enola Gaze bay doors opened and the crew wore their darkened goggles. The bomb fell at 8.15 a.m. Hiroshima time. As it fell, Tibet sharply turned the plane 155 degrees and dived 1,700 feet so he could pick up enough speed to escape the bomb's death zone. At the same time, the great artist dropped three instrumentation packages to monitor the effects of the bomb and radio them back to the scientists on board. 45 seconds later, Little Boy detonated 1,903 feet above the Ioi Bridge. Tibet would later say that everything just turned white in front of him. Seconds after the bomb exploded, the first shockwave hit the plane. Tibet kept the plane level and then a second shockwave hit. After it passed, Tibet activated the intercom and proudly announced to the crew, quote, Fellows, you just dropped the first atomic bomb in history, end quote. In his log, co-pilot Robert Lewis wrote, quote, My God, what have we done? End quote. One of the crewmen, tail gunner sergeant George Caron, later described what he saw. He described a cloud of fire and a fast-rising column of smoke. On the ground, countless fires broke out, making the city look like a bed of coals. Then, the mushroom cloud, with a center of shooting flames, rose and spread out to a width of more than two miles. On the ground, the bright flash and the intense heat of the detonation killed, burned, blinded and maimed as deadly radiation spread from the death zone. Almost everything within a half mile radius of ground zero was incinerated. Those within ground zero that survived the initial heat wave would later die from radiation burns and blast injuries. 
It is estimated that within seconds of the bomb detonating above Hiroshima, 70,000 men, women and children died and most of the city was vaporized. Those who survived would later tell of a blinding light, sudden heat and pressure, and of buildings collapsing on top of or around them. The reason why the bomb proved so deadly in Hiroshima was because of four things. The first, the fact that it was an atomic bomb and should never have been used. The second, Hiroshima was flat, which meant that the shockwave wasn't impeded by any natural land formations. The third, the fact that the bomb exploded slightly northwest of the center of Hiroshima and four, the wooden construction that was prevalent in the city. This meant that, because of the heat wave, most of the buildings in the city spontaneously burst into flame. In the days that followed, approximately 60% of Hiroshima's population, which was around 340,000 at the time, died or was injured. Radiation sickness, on the other hand, would linger in the survivors, the effects of which are felt to this day. In the next four months, approximately 100,000 to 140,000 and 170,000, in some estimates, people would die from injuries directly related to the attack. As for infrastructure, nearly 70% of the city's buildings were destroyed. The several thousand degrees that were caused by the initial explosion started fires as far away as 14,000 feet. The blast's shockwave, traveling at the speed of sound, obliterated wooden structures and toppled brick and concrete walls. Everything within a two-mile radius was destroyed or seriously damaged. The overall result of the bomb was a city that was smashed to pieces with several fires already raging out of control. Meanwhile, up in Enola Gay, the crew watched in horror as the city appeared to boil. As persons would later put it, quote, the huge dust cloud covered everything. The base of the lower part of the mushroom, a mass of purplish grey dust, about three miles in diameter, was all boiling. The mushroom top was also boiling. A seething turbulent mass, it looked as though it was coming from a huge burning fire. It seemed as though the whole town got pulverized. End quote. Tibets watched as fire sprang up everywhere, quote, amidst a turbulent mass of smoke that had the appearance of bubbling hot tar. He went on to add, quote, if Dante had been with us on that plane, he would have been terrified, end quote. In my opinion, most of the crewmen on the Enola Gay might have been forgiven for not knowing what the bomb would do to the citizens of Hiroshima, but people like Parsons? Not really. Parsons had been part of the Manhattan Project before the bombing of Hiroshima, which meant that he, at least, had some inkling of what the bomb would do to the Japanese. Some of you might argue that those bombs were the only way to quickly end the war, but that would be an irresponsible argument. Before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Allies had been conducting a firebombing campaign on Japanese cities. Those campaigns left approximately 900,000 Japanese dead. So for those of you who would argue that it was the only way to quickly end the war, then I'd ask you this. If that was the only way, then what 
of the firebombing campaigns which left more people dead than were killed by the atomic bombs. That's why some historians insist that the ugliest part of World War II was the Pacific Front because it went from being fought on battlefields to being fought on the streets of residential homes. Those residential homes were Japanese. As Hiroshima burned, the Enola Gay turned away from the city and began heading back to the runway it had taken off from just a few hours earlier. As Tibets emerged from the plane, General Carl Spatz, commander of the Strategic Air Forces in the Pacific, pinned a Distinguished Service Medal on him. The other members of the crew, including Parsons, were awarded the Silver Star. President Truman, returning home from Potsdam on board the cruiser USS Augusta, had his lunch interrupted when the captain of the ship passed him a cable announcing the attack. Quote, this is the greatest thing in history, he exclaimed. It's time for us to get home, end quote. Meanwhile, in Hiroshima, the night brought no relief to the dying. Doctors and nurses were overwhelmed, and the smell of death filled the air along with smoke. Father Sims, a German priest who had survived the attack, said, quote, Where the city stood, everything, as far as the eye could reach, is a waste of ashes and ruin. Only several skeletons of buildings, completely burned out in the interior, remain. The banks of the river are covered with dead and wounded, and the rising waters have, here and there, covered some of the corpses. On the broad street in the Hakushima district, naked burned cadavers are particularly numerous. Among them are the wounded who are still alive. A few have crawled under the burnt-out autos and trams, frightfully injured forms beckon to us and then collapse. Even with relief coming to the stricken city, Hiroshima will be a devastated ruin filled with the dying for many weeks to come. End quote. In Tinian, preparations began for a second atomic strike mission. The aim of this one was to carry Fatman into combat. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of our second season. If you liked my research and narration, you know what to do. Support the show on patreon.com slash societyofstrife and buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife. Tune in next Friday as we journey to Nagasaki.